Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on Democracy Sausage, we pick over the latest news poll, we drill down into Labor's dental plan, and we ask, can Clive's cash splash get Palmer into Parliament? Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny. That's me. And you're listening to the third in our series of podcasts leading up to federal election 2019. Now, Democracy Sausage is a podcast series produced by the Policy Forum and the Australian National University. Now, as I said, I'm Mark Kenny. I'm a long-term political journalist and commentator from the Press Gallery in Parliament House. And these days, I'm a senior fellow at the Australian Studies Institute here at the ANU. I'm also a columnist with the Adelaide Advertiser. Today, for episode three in our series, I'm joined by a very seasoned political journalist colleague of mine, Kieran Gilbert, Chief Political Correspondent with Sky News Australia. Welcome, Hi there, Kieran. Mark. And uh, also with us today, Professor Ian McAllister, uh, an expert in Australian politics and particularly in Australian elections from the uh, School of Politics and International Relations. Welcome, Ian. Hello, Mark. Yeah. Also here with us is Dr. Liz Hanna. Now, Dr. Liz Hanna is Chair of Environmental Health for the World Federation of Public Health Associations, among other things. Welcome, Liz. Greetings, all. And Dr. Maria Taflaga, who is a, also a colleague from the School of Politics and International Relations. Welcome, Maria. Hello. Great to be here. Now, if you're wanting to uh, get in touch with us in any way or give us any feedback, we're, of course, always up for that. The Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can email us too at podcast at policyforum.net. Now, so let's get into it. We're about three weeks into this election campaign. Oh, sorry, we're two weeks in. We've got three weeks to go, I should say. And it's really coming down to almost a three-week campaign in the sense that we lost a whole section of the first part of the uh, the election campaign really to uh, public holidays, Easter, Anzac Day. There was a fair bit of shadow boxing, but it seems like the gloves have come off now, Kieran, and uh, we're really uh, seeing this election campaign heat up. Yeah, it's game on, Mark, and it, it's an interesting um, situation we've got where it's the campaign proper, as you say, after Anzac Day and Easter, but also... Um, from t- from now, we are voting. It's a three-week pre-poll uh, from the 29th of April through to the 18th of May. So those that have made up their minds, will, um, you know, certainly would uh, have the opportunity to vote now. And therefore, and the estimates I've heard is that we'll probably see a third of the electorate go to the ballot box before election day proper. Yes. Now, Ian McAllister, you've actually done some work on this in the past. Uh, that that sounds about right, doesn't it? There is a uh, an increasing tendency of Australians to go to the polling booth early if they can. It is right. Last time it was 32% that voted early. We would expect certainly more than that, perhaps as much as 40%. 
Uh, we find in our surveys, we've asked this question in the Australian Election Studies Survey, that the people that vote early tend to have made their minds up. So, in fact, these are quite rusted on voters who are quite committed to the major political parties. So they're not necessarily people who will be affected by events during the course of the election campaign, such as the very first debate, which is due to start today, various policy launches and other things like that. Yeah, Maria, do you think that uh, that actually um – you know, sort of changes the way that election campaigns are, are, are being designed, the fact that we've got so many people voting early, but also taking Ian's point that a good many of them are kind of, in a sense, committed voters, so they may be less affected by, you know, the the, the, the attempts to sway them that election campaigns really amount to. Uh, yes, anecdotally, we do know that this does change the way parties are uh, running election campaigns. Uh, and if anything, it's sort of making things a bit harder for uh, parties which don't necessarily have the membership bases that they used to in the past. So now they, instead of needing to find volunteers just for polling day, they have to actually find volunteers for three weeks in multiple locations across um, Australia, which can be um, a real challenge for them. Uh, and it's also changing the way that parties announce policy uh, proposals because they, they sort of need to dribble them out through this um, period because people might start voting early rather than backloading them as they have in the past. Yeah, what do you think about that, Liz uh, Hannah? Is is the uh, the early kind of voting thing? Does it change the the way the election feels? Is it is it? Uh, are we seeing the parties front load their policies now? Uh, well, the health sector have been um, um, eagerly awaiting uh, health policies as they as they roll out. Um, by and large, I'd agree that uh, a good proportion of, although I don't have the stats, a good proportion of the health sector are fairly committed to which policies and which uh, which parties historically um, offer the best services, not only for them as a workforce, but also in, in uh, addressing the needs of health of the country. And just on health policy, I mean, that's obviously your particular area of expertise. Labor's made some, some big... Um, I guess initiatives outlined just in the in the last twenty four hours before we've gone to air here um, about uh, you know um, free dental care for pensioners uh, and uh, these kinds of things um, you know raising I guess some you know comparisons with uh, Medicare Gold from you know way back in whenever that was uh, what was that twenty oh four I guess. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously health is a key issue in this election campaign. Does the coalition have any chance of making up any any ground on on in health policy or is it or is it just an area where it's kind of surrendered to labor? Um I think the coalition have uh, historically have had have had problems with with health in uh, multiple attempts to uh, to claw back uh, Medicare and that uh, that still lingers. Um, and so the, you know, the battle that's gone to and fro over the past decades in terms of, uh, boosting up Medicare and, and the universal health service, um, between the two major parties, um, is still there. The, now with reference to adding on the dental health sector have been arguing for this for a very, very long time, largely because if people lose their teeth, they really can't eat equal so you end up with the uh, elder folk who are, you know have to resort to eating you know mushy foods and such which is not appetizing and once their nutritional state goes down then um, then their health declines and so it's we've noticed the fluoride has certainly helped it but there's still major health issues um, and so what 
the health sector by and large has been wanting for a very long time, and that's full rollout of, of dentals. So the Labor policy makes, um, makes some initial start towards that, but uh, we'd be looking for a full one over years to come. Kieran, um, I noticed that you know, in that Medicare uh, gold-style announcement, the idea of uh, free dental care for pensioners, um, it, it really did mark a kind of return to talking to the older part of the electorate. Uh, there'd been a lot of commentary in the in the election camp up, campaign up until now that that Labor was pretty much pitching its whole policy mix toward the younger end of the of the sort of age spread. Uh, but clearly, this is a policy designed to uh, to uh, attract votes from elderly people as well, and and to shore up the cohort that aren't as well off. We mm. know that the franking dividend policy has been. Um, well, we, they have exempt any pensioners or part pensioners yeah, from point. that. So this is about they did that. They had they did, that sort of a, that was kind of a gaffer tape change, wasn't it? it? Was I mean, it, it, initially that wasn't the case, but no, and they had to I amend think, the policy. And and as many people are obviously, I think older people are more engaged, but many in the electorate probably just tuning into the campaign now. It's important for Labor to reassure those pensioners, part pensioners and so on that, well, first of all, on that issue of franking credits, if they are, you know, in that uh, in that bracket that they won't be affected by other changes. And then, you know, further to that on the health issue, they're saying, well, we are for you. If you're struggling, you're on a pension in, say, I'm thinking Northern Tasmania, well, we will look after you because as we know, there are a number of marginal seats in that particular area where for one reason or another, it looks like the Liberals are competitive there. So I think if we think it in terms of a number of the seats that Labor's trying to sandbag as well as the public health policy issue, it makes sense that they do that. Now, this uh, this whole discussion happens on a day when we've seen a, a news poll come out which has shown, suggests anyway, that the race is tightening further. Uh, Ian McAllister, what, what's your response to those numbers that we see that put the coalition, as I say, in news poll at 49.51? There's some interesting kind of methodology to get there, but it does suggest that the race is tightening. It does suggest that the race is tightening, but it's worth remembering that this is well within the margin of sampling error. For a survey like news poll, it's accurate to plus or minus about two, two and a half percentage points. So when you say there's a 1% change, that's really not statistically significant. Now, what does make a difference is the trend is going in one direction, yeah, and that does suggest that it's probably accurate. But also what we find with the polls during election campaigns is as soon as the campaign starts, they narrow and they always narrow. So what we're seeing is a, a typical pattern where the two parties will start to converge. Then one or other will win the election by one or two percentage points. Yes. Do, do anyone else have a, a theory about that? Are you, uh, are you convinced by the polls, uh, Liz or Maria? Well, the polls reflect national trends and, of course, the parties have to actually win in specific geographic seats. So even if uh, the, the contest is narrowing just like it always does every time, um, elections in Australia are generally won typically by, you know, 1% to 2%. So um, I, I don't know if we should be as excited as perhaps um, others might be uh, about these uh, poll results. They're, they're, on, that, they're on trend. That news poll as well. They changed the methodology of uh, the way they split the Palmer United preferences. So up yeah, until this yeah. point, Palmer's been treated as you know one of the other parties. He hasn't been asked, haven't asked uh, explicitly about him and his party. And further to that, not only asking about 
Palmer specifically, they've also split the preferences 60-40 in favour of the Liberals over 50-50, which has been the modus operandi to this point and much closer to the preference split when Palmer was last a fixture in politics back in 2013. Yeah, that's right. So the theory, uh, well, the, the practice, in fact, was uh, with Palmer United Party, uh, as, which was its previous name, with Palmer United Party voters, was that they were pretty undisciplined. They didn't necessarily follow how to vote cards. Many of them probably weren't even given how to vote cards because it was not really a party in the traditional sense with all the machinery and people on every polling booth and so forth. So there was a fairly, uh, as I say, undisciplined spread of preferences from what were called PUP voters before. Now in its new incarnation, the United Australia Party, obviously Clive Palmer's spent vast amounts of money, vast amounts of money. We, we, we're hearing sort of 50 million or more by the time the, the dust has settled from this election campaign, just on advertising. Um, and the theory is that as a result of the preference deal that he has done with, with the Liberals, uh, with the coalition that, uh, which will preference them ahead of Labor, that, uh, there'll be still some untidiness, but 60% of, uh, United Australia Party voters will vote, uh, you know, will put the coalition ahead of Labor. Does that seem like, it seems to me like a fairly reasonable assumption, but what are you thinking? It, it, it's, it is reasonable. What we find in the election study when we looked at the, the Palmer vote last time was that they were almost equally drawn from previous Labor and previous Liberal voters. So it was all Almost an even split. The Palmer Party is really, and the United Australia Party in its new incarnation, is really a simple protest party. So it's soaking up all these disillusioned voters. These are people that tend not to follow how to vote cards, and they're declining in terms of the proportion of people that use them anyway. It was about 40% in the last election. So the net effect of that is that it, it could split 60 40, could be 50 50, somewhere around there. Now I saw uh, Clive Palmer uh, speaking on the Today, Today Show with uh, with Deb Knight uh, this morning, and he was saying that uh, news poll is basically implying that news poll was a conspiracy that Palmer United the, the, the United Australia Party would govern probably in its own right after the election. Uh, that, uh, that you know people know this. Uh, Bill Shorten knows this. He's not fit to be not only not fit to be prime minister, but not fit to be in the parliament, according to Clive Palmer. Uh, he doesn't care who likes him, who doesn't. He's got four thousand million, quote four thousand million dollars, and five hundred million dollars in the bank. I mean, it was all that kind of. It, it really did feel very Trump-like. The whole thing, attacking the media, attacking anyone who doesn't like him, parading his wealth. What, what do you think about this, Liz Hannah? Is this going to work with the voters? Oh well, I mean, they've seen a, a bizarre example where that sort of behaviour can be. You know, can pull off an election, um, and I would imagine there'd be many people actually sinking some pennies into to support this. Um, it's you know sends shivers up the spine of uh, I'd say vast swathes of the population if that um, if that should ever follow. But if I may just revert the question a little yeah, bit back yeah. to the polls and ask in with now that we've got an extra seventy thousand youngsters enrolled with the polling. Does that ac accurately capture those folk who may not be, you know, and in the normal way that you'd capture people in, in polling to see what their vote might be? Well, the polls generally overestimate people that are a bit older, so they do tend to underrepresent younger people. Normally, that's taken into account through weighting. So normally, they're pretty accurate in terms right. of representing the, the national population. The other point which people have made is that bringing all these younger people into the electorate is going to change the outcome. There's 14 million people in the electorate. So bringing in, say, 100, 200,000 younger people that wouldn't normally have voted, 
unless they're concentrated in several seats or they're disproportionately likely to support one or other party, the net effect on the overall outcome is going to be pretty small. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, that actually, um, and, and a sobering point, really, because there's been a lot of discussion about the number of people who've been brought in as a result of the, uh, the same-sex marriage survey, and and uh, you know that they would be more progressive, progressively inclined, particularly motivated by things like climate change. Um, look, I think we'll come back in a moment and talk about climate change, and I think also about um, the you know the the, the, the potential models, I suppose, what we're actually looking at, the main question of this election, which is who will govern and what will it, what would each of the two sides look like. So we'll come back after that. And that brings to an end the first part of Democracy Sausage. Hi, Sharon Bessel here. This week on Policy Forum Pod, we look at the growing pains of Timor-Leste. Two decades on from independence, we discuss why this young country is gripped by policy paralysis and the surprising role of martial arts in the country's politics. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. So let us uh, go to this uh, question of um, the major parties now because I've seen some very interesting uh, discussion in, in recent times in the commentariat about um, – well, well, you know, we've discussed it ourselves before too. Labor's obviously got a very ambitious agenda. It's quite a full policy book that it's put out there. Morrison and the coalition, on the other hand, are essentially running on the status quo. They're putting a lot of store in their income tax plan and they're putting a lot of store in management of the economy and pretty much the rest of their campaign message is focused on why we shouldn't have a Labor government. Now, my colleague Phil Curry made the point that this means that Scott Morrison is, um, compared to the, the agenda that Bill Shorten has for his first 100 days, Scott Morrison's main task will be to, as I think Phil put it, cobble together uh, a, a ministry from the remnants of you know what's gone on in the coalition over the last term, a lot of resignations and the like, and then to hopefully legislate the tax cuts and then it'll be back to business as usual. Is this is this going to fly, Maria? I mean, does that it doesn't sound like a very exciting um, uh, sort of enticing package for voters. Oh, in some ways, um, this is a really curious election because the the prime minister sounds much more like an opposition leader, and the opposition leader sounds more prime ministerial than they have for a very long time. Um, and I, I guess it sort of does sort of say something that we've had a, a government that's been in power for two terms and isn't really running on a record. Um, or something to sort of say that they can point to and say that these are the things we've delivered for you and these are the things that we're planning to bring you in the future beyond um, tax cuts, which is, broadly speaking, a smaller version of what they presented to us at the last election. Um, and as for Labor, um, well, I mean, in many ways, Labor is doing what Labor kind of does, which is um, in its sort of grand tradition with Kevin Rudd being more of an exception to this rule. So, you know, you mentioned the Whitlam government, uh -huh. but, um, you know, Labor also uh, undertook a lot of policy work in the 19, early 1980s, um, which Bill Hayden pretty much did, yeah. uh, which then Hawke kind of took over and, and abandoned most of that due to, due to events, largely speaking. So, so Shorten is kind of campaigning in a sort of more traditional um, Labor style for them, um, specifically at change of government elections. And I'm not saying that they will win, but um, it does have that uh, feel That feel to of it. being a change of government election. Do yeah. you think, uh, Kieran Gilbert, that uh, Bill Shorten's taken too many risks here? 
Oh, I'll tell you on the 19th of May. <laughs> it's, a, it's hard to say at this point. It is the big question in a well, sense. It is, it? and something Maria said uh, I think is showing up as well in terms of the preparedness to get into the debates as well. So um, Morrison taking the traditional opposition leader's approach of saying, I want to do every debate possible. I want as much scrutiny and as a, a much level playing field with the other guy as possible, um, whereas Shorten's while he's going a big target in terms of policy, he's going small target in terms of debates. He only has agreed to two um, and he's under pressure to agree to two more. Um, there is a great deal at stake though in this election, not just in terms of the individual's concern, but as you've said, this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Policy, very ambitious policy plan that he's got, and arguably the most ambitious since Houston of '93. Mm. And if he isn't able to get this secured, there is a huge question mark as to whether any opposition will put anything uh, near this sort of detail to the electorate um, if it proves, you know, a failure again. I think he will win. I think most likely he will be the one that will be busy for the hundred days. Um, after the election, but uh, there is a risk, as you say. How big the risk? Well, can he survive it? We'll know on the 18th of May. Yeah, well, I noticed that one of the things he said in one of the interviews he's done, this is Bill Shorten recently, he said, the times will suit us. We reflect the national mood better than the dad's army of climate change deniers on the other side. Now, I, I, I thought there was a certain irony in that because probably most of the people who would uh, agree with the criticism about climate change don't know anything about dad's army and doesn't mean anything <laughs> to them uh but it was a good show many many years ago of course um ian mccallister what, what do you think is do you think that uh, the in terms of the the political risk here the 93 election with john Hewson, who was on this podcast last week he described uh you know his uh, his effort as the longest suicide note in Australian political history that being fight back you know because he puts so much policy into the electoral marketplace and then failed, um, it's taken, what is it, 26 years for for an opposition to be so bold again, Not you know, notwithstanding Maria's point. I mean, oppositions have done uh, bold things in the past, but uh, really in the in the quantum of policy that we see uh, Bill Shorten putting into the into this electoral marketplace, you know, it's a pretty bold play. Uh, if he fails, will anyone ever try this again? Well, I think Labour has been looking at some of the surveys which show that an increasing proportion of people see very little difference between the major political parties in terms of policies. So what they're doing is putting out a series of very relatively safe policies, health education, in the sense that Labour's traditionally had up to a 20 percentage point advantage as the party in terms of being better in dealing with those issues. The coalition traditionally has had an advantage on dealing with government debt, economic management, superannuation. But again, a lot of that has weakened over the last couple of elections because they had various quite dramatic changes to superannuation. They haven't dealt with the government debt in the way that uh, some people would have expected. So their advantage there is quite limited. But I might just mention, you, you mentioned the 1993 election. 
We also should go back to 1998 because that was a GST election. So the government was putting forward quite a significant change to tax policy. And that was actually a huge risk mm. for them as well. And they only just won the election. Um, and, and lost the popular vote, actually. And indeed, during the course of the election campaign, it looked as if they might have lost the election. So that was really the last election in which voters were offered really a quite significant difference in terms of policy apart from the current election. I guess another important point is that, um, you know, opposition parties now have the parliamentary budget office to help them craft these policies um, and to help them get the numbers right. And um, and whilst there weren't necessarily problems with Hewson's numbers, it was just the sheer quantum of things he wanted to change that were all very complex tax uh, changes to superannuation to like the way fuel was tackled, the way, uh, you know, pensions would be managed and so on and so forth. The list goes on. Um, and his his ministers and his party simply couldn't understand all the things he was trying to do. It was like a university education for them all, <laughs> right? So if they couldn't understand it, how could they go on to explain it to the voters? Whereas apart from franking credits and negative gearing, which is sort of intuitive and emotional anyway, um, Labor's policy proposals, which are quite bigger, are much easier to explain, much more intuitive. They are. But one of the lessons, uh, Kieran Gilbert, from the 2016 election that their coalition learned bitterly, I mean, it survived, Malcolm Turnbull survived that election with a one-seat majority. I mean, they came very close to losing that, um, was of, they, they, they were aggrieved over Labor's Medicare campaign. Now, obviously, that did play to Labor's strengths, of, uh, as we've been discussing earlier in health policy, but it also showed the power of the negative campaign during, you know, of, of fear and, and the negative uh, message during election campaigns. And that's what Labor was effectively doing, saying that the government is going to, you know, privatise Medicare in some way. Uh, really, we see a reversal of that now. The government's running a very strong fear campaign. Uh, um, Scott Morrison keeps saying, when Bill Shorten runs out of his money, he's going to come for yours. Uh, I mean, none of this actually makes sense, as if Bill Shorten's actually personally getting the money and all that. But but nonetheless, this is a message they would have focus group tested, and they're running it pretty hard. Will it yeah. resonate? Well, t- 2016, they, the, the criticism has, has been that they didn't go negative on Shorten. Um, my understanding is that when they did, when they tried, it backfired because the electorate wasn't expecting Shorten to win. So they were yeah. asking, why are you wasting your time on this individual? Um, and so therefore it had no impact. This time, Shorten is the favourite. Most people expect him to win and the Liberals are confident it will resonate this negative campaigning. But the flip side is that Labor's going to run just as hard. You've got, in my opinion, the two leaders where you've got the best political antenna of the two leaders since I'd say 2007 yeah, Rudd and Howard. Yeah. They are both, you know, intuitive politicians. They will both go hard on both the negative. Both street fighters. Both, yeah. And, and they shorten will return to have. And it's not like he hasn't got a lot to work with. They've been a rabble. They, you know, in, it's you don't have to look too hard to find the internal tensions that remain. So it won't take too much for them to you know, return serve, so to speak, in terms of their negative campaigning. Liz Hannah, what's your view about the, the scare campaign? Do you think the, the tax message, uh, the idea that Labor is going to blow the budget, that it's going to spend far more than uh, than is prudent, that, uh, um, you know, taxes will go up and all that, is that going to frighten some voters away, even though they might be attracted to some of these new services? My estimation would be that they would be um, uh, warmly received. 
when these promises towards you know the health and education sector rather than see that as um, as a negative and clawing back particularly the uh, you know the conflicted arguments that we're seeing in terms of uh, economic management um, and that done at the um, at the at the price of the NDIS for example mm. um, and so Again, could realise that my perspective is coming from. So, therefore, a lot of the people that I'm, you know, listening to, talking to, and observing um, are those who have a very strong social um, uh, social pressure in terms of wanting to see an Australia that's, you know, that's caring and that's just and and is looking forward to, um, <clears throat> you know, to, to building Australia for a, a stronger future in terms of, um, you know, health and societal well-being rather than widening the gaps. Um, and forcing more and more people onto, you know, at the you know the bottom scrap heap of society, which is where the health sector has to go and try and, and patch them up again. Yeah, one of the other elements that could come in uh, late in this election campaign is an interest rate cut, um, and that's really quite an interesting dynamic to consider because um, we don't see interest rate movements happen all that much during election campaigns. I think one happened in the late in the 2007 election campaign, but it was an interest rate going up, the cash rate going up, which uh, uh, the Howard government was not too impressed with, but of course didn't have any control over it. This would be uh, interest rates coming down, so presumably taking some pressure off people's wallets if they're passed on. But of course, it would also be a pretty chill uh, commentary on the state of the economy. How, how do you, which way do you think that would tip, uh, Maria? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say that both parties will will spin it to their their story. The government will, um, you know, say that that's mortgage relief, and Labor will kick the crap out of them, saying that it's, you know, um, a poor economic result and the economy is going down the hill. But you know, there'll be savers out there, you know, older people, pensioners who might not necessarily welcome. Yeah, an yeah. interest rate cut because it means their capacity to save has been eroded. Yeah, that's again. right. Their their yeah. their sort of retirement savings mm. that, from which they're earning interest would be earning less interest, and they actually take a haircut as a result of that. What do you think about that? Dean? Well, what the research shows is that voters are tend to be tend to be affected by their perceptions of the national political economy. So if they take the view that an interest rate cut will affect the national economy in a positive way, then that will certainly go to the advantage of the government. They're much less affected by their individual economic circumstances. So if their bank account is affected by some way, their standard of living is not going to have a huge effect, but their perception of its effect on the national economy, particularly prospective into the future, will be the thing that will shape their vote. That's really interesting that, that that people are not just motivated by a sort of a, a kind of a pared back sense of their own interest. They look at the the broader picture. I find that quite an encouraging result, actually. Well, it's what we call sociotropic voting as against egocentric voting, which is people's individual perceptions. And it's something you find across the world, in the United States and most European countries, the difference here is that voters tend to make a, a future judgment, a prospective judgment, rather than a retrospective one, which is more typically what you find in other countries. And the reason for that is we have three-year parliaments, whereas the other countries tend to have four or five. So we don't have a long enough period for which voters can actually make a retrospective judgment. So they tend to make a prospective judgment. Right. And you call that sociotropic voting. I'm thinking that uh, the other thing that around which people might be doing some sociotropic Tropic voting, if I can uh, uh, borrow the term and, and bend it a bit, is uh, is climate change. 
clearly a very key issue in this election. Anyone have any strong thoughts about how that's going to play? I mean, obviously, Labor's making a much more strong intervention in that area. Yeah, it's a... Um it, 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 and when Ian was was speaking, then I, I was wondering. I mean, a good deal of this has been the you know the retrospective way that people have uh, have responded and their sort of drivers, I guess, for as far as their voting intention. Um, but there's no doubt because the environment was always ignored. You know, it was a very very small thing. And I think the issue of the environment and the future and climate is really rising. And I'm not sure how that gets factored into a, a, a show slow and gradual shift. Um, so it's clearly going to be a much a much larger um, influence, um, and of course you you were talking about the sociotropic world. It's as far as human evolution is concerned, it's uh, it's the altruism. You know, human societies only exist because we have altruism that overrides our personal greed, um, and so uh, hence the fact it's um, uh, that's pretty universal. Um, and of course, and again, you know, when you balance that against. Um, what's regarded as the hyper greed and the super fat cats that actually it, it drives a response to increase that level of of caring for for the disadvantaged. So as far as um, climate change, the uh, yes. Yes, because we're noticing that uh, very strong shift in, in um, um, broadening out the people who are actually believing not only is this happening, but it's affecting me, my family and people I know. And that's the greatest uh, driver of, of people to shift from denial or uncertainty towards realising that this is um, this is something of the future. So we really must be doing something about it. Um, and, and and a lot of people are still very unhappy with the lack of emphasis from the, from the ALP on this. From the ALP as well as from well, they're not expecting the it from the coalition at all. They've showed themselves to be pretty much environmental vandals. So, um, the I think the electorate were wanting uh, many of them are wanting a stronger show from Labor. Particularly in terms of Adani and and those you know massive um, and the um, a fracking of gas in the Northern Territory, uh, which is going to be a major contributor to uh, to gases which we really can't afford. Kieran Gilbert, that question of Adani that Liz raises, I mean that's obviously uh, sort of a friction point between the two sides, uh, the, the the environment and the more immediate field of jobs. Uh, do you think the this this massive protest march up from of Southerners up into Queensland? Does their case any good in Queensland, or will it galvanise opposition to uh, to sort of uh, well? Should I say, put it another way? Will it galvanise support for Adani amongst people in uh, North Queensland who are who are concerned about I economy think, and jobs? Yeah, I think it's more the, the latter, and that's the balancing act that Bill Shorten has had to to, to manage. Is that there is that view um, in large. Parts of this country, in in this city where we are, in Canberra, I think in uh, Melbourne, in in Sydney, and and elsewhere, where it's very much um, anti Adani, anti opening up the Galilee Basin. Uh, but having said that, in that area, in Capricornia, around Rockhampton, in Herbert, around Townsville, all of these marginal seats in regional Queensland, there that, is a that being a Labor seat held by what they won it by thirty seven votes. Thirty seven votes. Seat, There's yeah. a fierce amount of. Um, you know, support for the idea um, and the jobs that, you know, allegedly would come with it. So it is a balancing act that he's got to try and navigate as one of the a leader of the major parties. Uh, and their view is that um, if they, they can eventually get votes back via the Greens in a political pragmatic sense, but he can't butcher, you know, the politics of Queensland and he's under a lot of pressure from the Australian Workers Union and others, CFMEU, um, to 
to not give any indication that he's going to block that particular project. Is the employment argument a bit oversimplified though? Because I've seen people in, in Queens, I've heard people in Queensland talking about the, you know, the jobs associated with yeah. the Great Barrier Reef, with tourism, with the clean environment and so forth. I yeah. mean, there are people in Queensland. Totally. It's not, as if, it's not as if it's all sort of south of the Tweed, everyone no. cares about it. No, no. You're right. It is. But you just have to look at um, the the fact that, you know, Obviously, Zach Beer is one of their mem- the candidates up there, um, a unionist, arguing so strongly in favour. He sees the politics of it very much one way. And in that particular seat of Flynn, you can go further up to uh, Capricornia and elsewhere, that they the politics of it on the ground in those seats are one way. There are further up, maybe Leichhardt, where the Great Barrier Reef and other issues come in, tourism and environmental concerns have more sway, but we there, there is the very um, blunt reality for Shorten that he's got to deal with the politics of, say, five, six seats in regional Queensland where Adani, is, there is support for it, and he can't, you know, he sacrifice that yeah. um, easily if he wants to win. Yeah, it's a very, very difficult one. Uh, I think we're going to wrap up there. But what I will do before we wrap up is is just go around and get a very quick response from all of you because, uh, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, we're right on the cusp of at least two leaders' debates. Probably there will be a third, I, I suspect. Um, do debates matter? I mean, it seems to me that political leaders these days, particularly opposition leaders, but uh, – as, as a number of us have noted today, uh, those roles may even be a bit reversed. But political leaders essentially want to get through these debates unscathed. That's almost their their index of success is to not not be beaten rather than necessarily to you know land a, a, a victory. What do you think? Do you think these debates will have any impact, Maria? Yeah, the the debate is important because uh, we see the two leaders head to head. Yeah, but who sees them? I mean, does anyone watch these anymore? Exactly. So what makes them important is really how how people like you, right, or Kieran uh, perceive them and how they then go on to write about them. Um, And I think it's basically um, sort of a confirmation uh, either way about how you feel about these candidates as to whether or not they're successful or not in this contest. Liz? I think... I like your question in terms of does anyone see them? And uh, I think one of the the key things that we're seeing, and you'd even find that the um, um, you know ABC political broadcasters are criticised for focusing too much on the politics rather than the policies. And I think the general public are really looking more for the policies rather than you know who wins and the personality. Yeah. Ian McAllister. Well, we find in the surveys that a declining proportion of people watch the debates. Last time, I think it was around about four out of 10, which is almost half the proportion that watched the debate in 1987. So you're correct, fewer people watch these. It is an opportunity for the leaders to have a bit of an outing, to have a debate. People can see them. That'll be quite important for Morrison because he hasn't done one of these before. In the last debate in 2016, only 32% of people thought that Shorten had actually won the debate. So he's not a particularly good debater, and that may be to Morrison's advantage. Yeah, interesting. Kieran? Yeah, just because you win the debate doesn't mean you win the election. I just was looking at Ian's survey, and if you go back to Kim Beasley, defeated John Howard in 1998, 2001, very convincingly in 2001, um, but did not go on to win, as we know. So it's important, I think, in terms of just their morale and the morale of the campaign. They might be able to get one or two hits on the opponent, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to win the 
election. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a fair bit of folklore about it, of course, dating right back to one of the most famous ones of all, the 1960 debate between JFK and, and Richard Milhouse Nixon, where Nixon was said to have lost the debate as much as anything else because he had a lot of sweat on his upper lip and looked like he was under pressure. But if that presidential election, which was, I think, one of the closest ever, turned on on that, then you know maybe. But you just don't get the impression that debates these days are anywhere near as pivotal. We see a lot more of our political leaders on a daily basis than was the case back then as well, I guess. Look, thanks very much for uh, for a really uh, lively and enlightening discussion. Maria Teflaga, Liz Hanna, Ian McAllister and Kieran Gilbert. Thanks very much. And you've been listening to Democracy Sausage coming to you from ANU, a production of Policy Forum and the Australian National University. As I say, our Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can contact us by email and the address is podcast at policyforum.net. Mark Kenny, thank you for joining us and we'll look forward to talking to you again in episode four. Thank you.